Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Whenever I think about heroes, and certainly when I think about heroes of the faith, I, I can't help thinking about this scene in Terry Gilliam's movie, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I apologize at the outset. I realized a few weeks ago I made a reference from uh, uh, Dickens's book, Bleak House, and, and sort of made this aside. If you've read the book, you'll no doubt remember, and then I chuckled because, of course, no one has read the book. Uh, again, it's one of those references. If you've seen The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, you'll know what I'm talking about, but, but then you'll also be like one of three people that uh, have seen it. But it's a great scene. So you have to picture there's a city and it's under siege. The Turks have surrounded the city, but this is the age of reason. And the mayor of the city is governing this city along what he considers to be rational lines, which were actually just the opposite of reason. So he's got all of his papers out in front of him as he's overseeing the city under siege. And, and they bring before him one of the soldiers who's defending the city. Now, this soldier, this is a cameo in the film. He's played by uh, Sting, the, the pop star. Before he was a pop star, when he was still a rock star, was trying to get into movies. So Sting suddenly shows up in one of those great sort of Napoleonic-era uniforms with all the gold buttons looking really kind of heroic. And walks up, they present him to the mayor, and they say, here he is, here's the hero of the siege. This soldier has single-handedly destroyed six enemy cannon and rescued ten prisoners. He's the guy. And the mayor looks at him and says, oh, you're the one that we've been hearing so much about. You're the great hero of the siege. And very humbly, the soldier says, well, I suppose so. And the mayor says, have him taken away and executed. And the soldier is dragged off, and everyone is looking baffled. Why are we executing this guy? And so the the mayor explains, and, and here's the explanation he gives. This sort of behavior is demoralizing for the ordinary soldiers and citizens who are trying to lead normal, simple, unexceptional lives. I think things are difficult enough as it is without these emotional people rocking the boat. It's crazy. The guy is heroically defending the city, but in the process, he's making the common soldiers feel bad about themselves, and so he's executed. It just seems uh, uh, really stupid. And yet, he kind of does have a point. If you know people like that, who are always single-handedly turning the situation around, who are just kind of doing the impossible, it's hard to be around them. They make you look bad. They make you feel bad about yourself. And that's always the problem, I think, with these hero narratives, right? That that if you're talking about Samson, for example, Samson has enough flaws where you can learn about his strength and not think, well, I'm such a weakling. You think, well, I'm glad I don't have the hangups that Samson has. But when you're subjected to a whole chapter of heroes of the faith, and you yourself are a person of faith, eventually you kind of start feeling small, Because they've accomplished so much, their faith is so strong in comparison to yours. It's demoralizing. There you are, just an ordinary, everyday Christian trying to lead an unexceptional life, and these heroes of the faith come along and seem to make it impossible. So that you read a passage like this, and you hear about the faith of Abraham that is unshakable, and and it almost preaches itself. 
You don't need me to get up and, and tell you. The lesson of the story is you need to be more like Abraham. You need to have a faith like Abraham does. You need to do the kind of things that Abraham did. Imagine what you could accomplish for Jesus if only you had the faith of Abraham. And you leave completely demoralized because, of course, you never will have that heroic faith. So here's the thing. You should be more like Abraham. You absolutely should be more like Abraham, and you should have a strong faith. And yet, these examples of heroes of the faith are held out to us in a very particular kind of way, a way that is very easy to misunderstand. And I would suggest the way that we interpret passages like this is almost always the wrong way. We read something like this about a hero of the faith, and and the lesson we walk away from is not only not the right lesson, but it's a counterproductive and maybe even a fatal one. We know that we should be like them. We know that we should emulate their faith. We know that we should aspire to a stronger faith, but we need to understand what purpose examples like this really serve. So today, we're going to try to get it right. Try to set the record straight. What do we do in the face of an example like Abraham's? When it comes to faith, there are always strong obstacles. There are always strong obstacles to believing, to being fully convinced. That's not an excuse for weak faith. In fact, it's a reason for strong faith. It's because there are strong obstacles to believing that we need to have a strong faith. Strong faith doesn't come from being a strong person. Strong faith comes from having a strong Savior. That's the key. There are always obstacles to faith. Abraham faced obstacles. Paul says, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now that line, so shall your offspring be, that's another quote again from Genesis 15, that covenant promise that God makes to Abraham. But in human terms, this is a promise that doesn't actually seem very likely to be fulfilled. Paul says about Abraham, he hoped, but he hoped against hope. He hoped against hope. He wasn't just an optimistic guy. In other words, he was actually pretty clear-eyed about the obstacles. A faith that doesn't acknowledge the obstacles in its path, it's not really faith. We have to acknowledge that we have good reason not to hope. We have good reason not to hope. Faith doesn't mean being ignorant. Faith doesn't mean not realizing the obstacles that are out there. That's not really faith. Faith is not just being in denial. This is one of the difficulties, I think, in in uh, storytelling, whenever an author or a filmmaker wants to portray a character who possesses faith, invariably, the way that that person is characterized is, is as kind of innocent or, or naive even. Like people have faith because they just don't see the world for what it really is. They don't realize what things are really like, and so they have this sort of wide-eyed, innocent faith rather than kind of a hard-nosed cynicism. They have a positive mental attitude, that sort of thing. 
Now, oftentimes, and, and oftentimes in church, we act as if the call to faith is a call to positivity. If you go to the bookstore and you, and you look for the Christian books, you know where you'll find them? What label will be on top of the bookshelf? Inspirational. Inspirational. It's like a synonym for uplifting because that's what faith is meant to be. People of faith are people who are just sort of floating above the surface of life, who don't see the many obstacles. Abraham saw the obstacles. Abraham understood that there was a hopelessness to his condition, not just an unlikelihood. It's not just that it was unlikely that God's promise to him would be fulfilled. It was pretty much impossible that this promise would be fulfilled. It was hopeless. If we're going to follow Abraham's example, then one thing we could start with is to face up to the obstacles squarely. Be honest about the obstacles we face, the impediments that we face. In the same way, that you can never really appreciate grace until you've been honest about sin. I think there's a sense in which you can't really appreciate what hope is meant to be until you've been honest about hopelessness. You've been honest about the obstacles. Abraham faced two major obstacles that Paul mentions, two weaknesses. He says he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So there's two weaknesses, Abraham's weakness and Sarah's weakness. He's about 100 years old when his promise comes to him. He doesn't have a son that it can be fulfilled through. So to have hope in this promise, he's also having to kind of confront the reality that he's not able to have a son. And even if he were, his wife is not able to have this son. So it's, it's like a two-for-one. These two weaknesses combined together make the situation pretty dire, pretty hopeless. It's in that context that we're told he did not weaken. There's something paradoxical. Despite these weaknesses, he did not weaken. When we think about uh, people who possess strong faith, we imagine them to be strong people. And what we're being told here is his faith did not weaken despite his weakness. Abraham wasn't strong. He was weak. He confronted real weakness that made uh, the thing he was hoping in seemed pretty much impossible. There's something that we can learn about this, something I think you can never be told too often, because so often when you hear people's, uh, let's call it deconversion stories, they have a similar theme. So people who say, I used to believe in God, I used to go to church, all that sort of thing, but now I don't do that anymore. Now, everybody's situation is, is different and unique, but there is a theme that you hear in a lot of stories like that. And, and if you were kind of reducing it down, it would be sort of like, I used to believe in that stuff, and then something bad happens. And then I questioned it all. Uh, I heard someone uh, this week talking about, you know, I used to believe in God. I was a Christian, went to church, did all that stuff, and then my wife died. And in the absence of her and in that tragedy in my life, I started to question all of that stuff. I don't want to belittle the pain that, that is behind an experience like that. Um, the reality is that when we're confronted by 
our weaknesses in this way, it's, it's normal for our faith to weaken. That's often the way that works. And, and sadly, it's not even something that requires that great a tragedy. The thing that makes us weaken in faith, you know, doesn't have to be a, a, a trauma, a tragedy. It can just be, I didn't get a promotion, or I, I lost the job I wanted, I didn't get the job I wanted, or, you know, the people that, that I thought were my friends, they're not as nice as I thought they were, or something like that, relatively trivial, and yet we question everything. Even though, even though, you have to ask yourself, like, what gave you the idea that, that God had promised that you would never suffer? Right? I believed until things went badly, and then I started to question it all. Well, what did you believe in exactly? Because the God of Scripture makes a lot of promises, but he never promises that bad things won't happen. In fact, the God of Scripture, it's pretty much the opposite with him. He promises bad things will happen that you will suffer, you will endure suffering. He promises he will be with you in that suffering, but he never says, believe in me and you won't suffer. There's something ironic about that, I think. I don't think it's that our own weaknesses weaken our faith so much as our own weaknesses, our trials reveal the absence of it. The fact that what we were building on was not the right thing in the first place. There are strong obstacles. And there are real impediments to hope. And we have faith, but not because we're strong people. And yet, it's because the obstacles are so strong that we need a strong faith. We're told about Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith. Paul doesn't say Abraham never wavered in anything, but he's not telling us anything about Abraham's character. He's not saying he was the kind of guy who had this flinty resolve, and no matter what happened, once his hand was to the plow, there was no looking back. There were probably plenty of things Abraham wavered in, but there was one thing that he didn't waver in. One thing, the promise of God. That's what he didn't waver in. That's what he held on to. That's where his hope was focused, on the promise of God. It's interesting the way Paul phrases this too, no unbelief made him waver. Because I think there is a connection between our wavering and unbelief. But it's absence of faith that makes us waver, makes us susceptible to the wind that Dan talked about last Sunday that blows us this way and that way. But it's, it's unbelief that is the weakness that makes us susceptible. If you have confidence, you act confidently. Rightly or wrongly, if you have confidence in your abilities, even if you have no abilities, you will act on that confidence because you believe. And the opposite is also the case. No matter how strong the thing your faith is in happens to be, if your faith in it is not very strong, you won't act confidently because you yourself are not confident. Everybody has confidence when there are no obstacles. Everybody feels confident and assured when nothing is standing in the way. When you can see what you want 
and there's nothing in your path, of course it seems easy to take it. But once there are obstacles, things change it. Things change. Some people have confidence, even though there are obstacles, but they have confidence because they don't see the obstacles. They don't realize that they're there, but that's not really faith. That's not really confidence. That's ignorance. What we're talking about is a confidence that exists despite the fact that there's no easy way forward. A confidence that exists despite the fact that there seems to be no way forward. Real faith is confidence despite having a clear view of the obstacles. Where does it come from? Not only does Paul say that Abraham had such a confidence, but he says it actually grew. He grew strong in his faith. It's not just that he didn't waver. It's not just that he didn't become weak in faith. He actually grew stronger in spite of the hopelessness, in spite of the obstacles. How did he grow strong in faith? Paul mentions two things specifically. He grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He grew strong as he glorified God. He grew strong as he trusted in the divine promise. That's how he grew. That's how that faith was able to grow in the presence of so many obstacles. He glorified God because he trusted in God. But in a weird way, he trusted in God because he glorified him. The act of worship followed from his confidence in God. He believed in God, and so he glorified him. But the act of glorifying God also helped him to grow in strength. It made him grow in his confidence. Just that, just the act, the practice of glorifying God, worship. It makes sense if you think about what worship is. Now, I know this is a tough question, and it's one that we get wrong a lot. You ask you know, the average evangelical Christian, uh, what is worship? The answer is going to be something like, it's the part of the service where we do the singing. That's the worship part. And, and then there's, there's the preaching, and, and by then the worship has stopped in more ways than one often. So we think of worship as kind of the part of the service, right, where the singing happens. But, but you don't think that. You know better. People say things like that. You're going, no, 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 the whole thing is worship. All of it is worship. Like the whole thing, including the sermon, is an act of worship. Like these are means of grace. There's something uh, worshipful about all of it. But there's also a deeper understanding about worship to come to. And it has to do with the relationship in worship. You'll find this, if you look in your order of worship, if you study the rubrics, which are the little written explanations and italics, and all the things that we do, you'll see that there's there's a back and forth that happens in worship. We're not just randomly doing stuff, that, that it's, it's God speaking to his people, and then we answer him. Sometimes we answer him in prayer, sometimes in song, but it's, it's back and forth. We'll hear from God as his word is preached. We'll answer afterwards with a confession of our faith. You get the idea. It's a dialogue back and forth, but it's a dialogue that emphasizes your dependence on God. The act of worship emphasizes our collective dependence on God. So glorifying him 
It makes perfect sense. It should grow your confidence because the act of worship is always reminding you of your dependence. So that's your need for him. But not just your need, but the fact that that need will be met by him. That he is one that you can depend on. Worship brings us into a position of dependence on our knees. But it brings us into the presence of the God that we depend on as well. Both of those things are calculated so that we might grow in faith. Faith in what? Well, faith in what Abraham had faith in. He was fully convinced, Paul says, but fully convinced of what? Paul gives it to us. He was fully convinced that God will keep his promise. That was the substance of his faith. Abraham believed, he had faith that God would do what he had promised. And that faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was fully convinced that God would do what God had said he would do. That's what the call of faith is all about. That's all you're being asked to believe in. That's the only thing you're being asked not to waver in, to be fully convinced of. Nothing else. Be fully convinced that God will do what God has promised. That's enough. If that's the only thing you can hold to unshakably, that's enough. Paul says that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved because he was fully convinced God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham didn't know what God was going to do. He didn't fully understand what the fulfillment of that promise would look like so that we can look back and, and we actually know more than he did. So much more is revealed to us in Scripture and history than Abraham could have dreamt of. And yet what we're called to have is the same faith that Abraham had to believe that God would keep his promises. He believed that, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Christ's righteousness was imputed to Abraham by faith, but not because he was a hero of the faith. And this is the key. This wasn't counted to him as righteousness because Abraham had such a strong faith that God said, wow, this guy Abraham, he is fully convinced. Those other guys with those unpronounceable Old Testament lambs, they're like partially convinced, but not Abraham, fully convinced. He doesn't waver. I'm going to go ahead and say that, that faith, that counts. That counts. I'm going to go ahead and count that as righteousness. That's not how it works. That's how we think about it. That, that Abraham was a hero of the faith. He was such a good guy. He was so obedient that God looked down at that obedience, that righteousness, that faith. And he's like, he's not perfect, but you know what? A guy like that, I can't not save him. And if, if we would just be like that too, if we would just follow in those footsteps, if we would have that kind of a faith, that strong faith, then God would look at us and say, you know what? That counts. That's good. Come on in. It's not the strength of his faith that resulted in this imputation of righteousness. Right? It was just faith. It was not a measure of the strength of his faith at all. It was a measure of the strength of his Savior. If you're ever wondering about faith, if you want a really good, exhaustive exploration of what faith is all about, saving faith, you could do a lot worse than looking at the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 14 is the one you want to look at. It's, it's called Of Saving Faith. And there's some stuff in there that's really helpful and, and I would say uh, comforting. The Westminster Confession describes saving faith as a grace that enables us to believe. 
And furthermore, says that's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. And ordinarily, the way the Spirit does this work is through the preaching of the Word. Uh, not just in sermons, but, but, but any time the Bible is, is spoken or the Word of God goes out, that's usually the way the Spirit kindles faith in people. Not always. Ordinarily, that's the way it works. It's not always the way it works. Even in Scripture, you see some extraordinary means being employed. But usually, it's the Word that the Spirit uses. And then that faith strengthens, that faith grows as a result of the Word, and also the administration of the sacraments and prayer. So the means of grace, uh, the preaching of the Word, sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism, also prayer, these are things the Spirit uses to strengthen us in faith. It's the reason why we attend to these things. You may think, if, if the gospel is all about getting saved. If I've gotten saved, why do I need to keep hearing sermons about it? Move on. This is why. Because the preaching of the word increases our faith. Because coming to the table, communion with Christ, it builds us up in faith. Because prayer builds us up in faith. It strengthens us. But when the confession answers the question, what faith is? These are the words that it uses. It says that saving faith is accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. Accepting, receiving, resting upon Christ alone. That's what faith is. It's not a work that you perform. It's kind of like the opposite of that. The opposite of that. It's just a confidence in the work of Christ to do everything. Resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. All of it. Relying on Christ alone for all of it. Not, I rely by faith on Christ alone in order to be justified so that I can then keep that justification through my obedience. But rather relying on Christ for all of it from beginning to end that he does all of the work. Here's where the comfort comes. For those of us who are non-heroes of the faith, the confession says this faith is different in degrees. Weak or strong may be often and many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory. Growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Your faith may be weak or strong. Your faith may often and in many ways be assailed. It may be weakened, but ultimately it will get the victory. The confession says faith grows up for many to full assurance. Many, not all. A real, a saving faith may be weak and may not even Come with assurance. You may continue to struggle even with fundamental doubts of whether Christ actually loves me and accepts me. And yet that faith is real, the confession says. Salvation is not about being strong in the faith. It's about turning to a strong Savior. Paul says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. 
The promise to Abraham was not just to Abraham. It was for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. That's the promise. And these words of salvation were not spoken just for Abraham, but for you and for your children and for all who are far off. They're written for our sake. They're written for the sake of those who believe in him who raised Jesus, the Father specifically in this case. Again, this is just another way of saying we're believing that God will do what he's promised. He promised life. In the resurrection, he raised Jesus back to life. Note that it's not a generic belief that's being talked about here. We're not saying uh, if you have faith, you just got to believe. And, and, and actually, it's even more than you've got to believe in God. But very specifically, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. The resurrection is mentioned there. Like Paul says, this is a very specific kind of belief, a specific kind of confidence in the God of the resurrection. Paul has been writing about Abraham throughout chapter 4, but he doesn't end with Abraham. He ends with Jesus. The reason he's talking about Abraham is to, to help us understand how Abraham and Jesus are connected. He tells us two things about Jesus right there at the end. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. His death atones for the sin of those who are in him, and his life means life for those who are in him. Jesus is a strong Savior. He's shown that strength by dying for us. And he shows that strength by giving us life in him. Abraham was fully confident, fully convinced in what God would do. We too are called to be fully convinced in what God will do, but also in what he has done in Christ. The problem with heroes isn't just that they make ordinary mortals feel inadequate. It's also that when you're trying to copy someone so that you can be like them, it's easy to copy the wrong things. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with Japanese swordsmanship because I was going to become a ninja when I grew up. I won't tell you whether or not that worked out because ninjas don't reveal stuff like that about themselves. But, but I read a lot of books about how to become a master of swordsmanship. And I remember this, this one story that stuck out with me. This young guy in a similar uh, quest to mine went and stayed with this sensei who was going to teach him swordsmanship, and he would observe everything about this master swordsman. And he noticed that in the winter, he always took baths in the evening, and in the summers, he always took baths in the morning. And he thought, well, that's the key. That's the key. This is what distinguishes him from all the other swordsmen, and so that's what he would do. He would bathe in the evenings, in the winter, and in the mornings, in the summer, and and then would look for the improvement in his swordsmanship. And guess what? It made no difference. It didn't affect his swordsmanship at all. He couldn't understand it because it seemed to be the only difference in what his master did and all the other masters of swordsmanship. So he goes to the master and asks, what's the key? What am I doing wrong? Not using the loofah correctly? Like, tell me the way, master. And it turns out the master swordsman says, well, I like to bathe in the uh, evening in the winter because, you know, like you do, I like to go to bed clean. But in the summer, it's so hot that you sweat all night, so I like to feel fresh in the morning, so I take baths then. And it has nothing to do with swordsmanship. 
That's the problem with hero worship. Because your heroes, it's not everything they do that makes them heroic. It's just the one thing that's the key. And the problem is, even the people who are responsible for it often don't realize what it is that makes the difference, It makes it hard. There are plenty of people who are excellent at what they do, but cannot possibly teach it because they themselves don't understand why it works the way it does. So that's the challenge. And it's a challenge we often fail as we look at heroes of the faith like Abraham and say, what is it about Abraham that I need to imitate? What is it about Abraham that I need to get right? We often miss what it is. As we look at what they did, we look at their strength. We look at the fact that, that no matter what happened, he wasn't weakened. Okay, well, I need to be more stoic. Whenever I suffer, I need to have a stiffer upper lip, and then I will be like Abraham. That's not it. That's not it. The difference isn't uh, his stoicism. It isn't in his like quirks of character. The thing that separates every hero of the faith is the direction that their eyes are pointing. Abraham's strength didn't come from inside. It came from where his eyes were fixed. And his eyes were fixed on God. That's where he was looking. Your strength, the strength of your faith, it doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from your character. It doesn't come from how spiritual you can be. It comes from the cross. It comes from Christ. That's where your strength comes from. So look to him. The thing you need to learn from Abraham and every other hero of the faith is to look where they looked. Don't look at them. Don't be like them. Look where they looked. Pay attention to where their eyes were pointing. Christ and his cross. When I was a kid, we always hated going to uh, my dad's mom's house because she didn't have a television. And uh, we like to watch television. You know, not like these days where kids play uh, video games. We watch television. We watch together. It was a warm communal thing that we did. Uh, not, not individualized. But, but we would rot our minds in front of the television. But whenever we went to my grandmother's house, we couldn't do that. She didn't have that. What she had was a record player. And you're thinking, well, great, you could rock out to tunes. You couldn't rock out to any tunes grandmother had. That they weren't that kind of thing. In fact, she didn't have a lot of music. What she had was, was records of Bible stories. Oh, it's fun. She didn't have a lot of them. So we actually had to listen to these things over and over and over again. And, and, and records, you know, they have the, the, the cracks in them, make all the noise. Like you'd, you'd get to where you would even know like where the scratches were in the story, like where it's going to get bad because you've heard it so many times. And one of these stories... I can't remember all of the details. I can remember the weird voices of the people who, who narrated them best of all. But one of them was about Joash. Joash, the little boy king in the Old Testament. And uh, one of the characters in the story at a certain point trying to encourage him quotes this psalm. And because of this, I was ruined forever for Psalm 121 because I can't hear it without hearing the, the sort of weird voice of the narrator uh, but it's a beautiful thing, Psalm 121. And, and if you struggle with faith, if you feel weak in faith, if you uh, feel as if you waver, you lack assurance, you look at the example of Abraham and you're like, I'm just the opposite of all of that, 
Psalm 121 would be a good place to turn. You'll recognize it. Verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. If you want to follow the heroes of the faith, you follow them by looking where they looked. And this is where they looked. This is where their strength came from. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.